Some of you know that this past week, our youngest son, Luke, got to go away to Bible camp in Michigan for like five days, and so we dropped him off last Sunday afternoon, and then we picked him up on Friday, and we have a picture that we're going to put up on the screen of this, but these, uh, for those of you who have been to camp before, you know that there are a lot of fun memories, a lot of reminiscing that goes along with these camp experiences. I went to camp over 30 years ago now, and I remember some of the new friends that I made, and I remember some of the songs that we sang, the games that we played, staying up late, waking up early, eating together in the dining hall, chapel, and you have a lot of fun memories and experiences that just kind of bring a smile to your face and make you laugh, but the reality is is that not every memory of camp is a good memory. I had a friend who uh, went to camp, uh, ended up breaking his arm on the second day we were there. He went to the doctor, had a cast put on his arm, missed the rest of the week of camp, could not play anything all summer long. And as a junior high boy, it didn't seem like there could be anything much worse than that that could happen to you. But just like at camp, there are things that we experience in our lives that we'd rather just forget. There are times and events and things that that we go through that create deep wounds in us and leave us uh, having these lasting scars. Unfortunately, suffering and affliction are very much a part of the human experience. We uh, talk about this often around here, but we live in a fallen world and we are ourselves fallen people. And sometimes we are surprised by the things that happen in our world. We think, I I can't believe that happened. And sometimes we're surprised about the things that we do. I can't believe I did that. Sometimes we can experience suffering and affliction because of something that someone else has done. Other times, maybe those things, those experiences happen to us because of something that we have done. And as much as we might like the good times of life, the reality is there are also bad times, there are hard times, painful times that we experience. Now, this might sound a little strange to you, but this is especially true for the people of God, the followers of Jesus Christ. It's actually what the Bible tells us, that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer even persecution. And that's what we're going to be talking about today as we uh, look together at the Word of God. And so if you have a Bible with you, or you can grab that uh, Bible app and open it up with me, but join me, if you will, in Psalm chapter 129, Psalm 129. Now our psalm this morning speaks about affliction, about how to deal with affliction, about how to pray through affliction, what we can learn about affliction. Psalm 129 is the 10th of 15 psalms that are known as the Psalms of Ascent. And what we've said through our study is that these are like pilgrim songs. These are songs that the Jewish travelers would sing as they were making their way from their homes and their villages up to Jerusalem in order to worship the Lord at the temple during one of the three major feasts annually. These songs were not only important and relevant for them in their day, but they also apply in our day as well, that we are are, uh, pilgrims on our own pilgrimage uh, with the Lord. And these songs are meant for a community of people. They're, They're not meant to be just for an individual. They are for a larger group that is journeying together towards the heavenly Jerusalem. These are uh, psalms that help us to grow. They are psalms that are psalms of discipleship. 
want to go ahead and read this psalm for today, and then we're going to go back and talk about it a little bit. But Psalm 129 is where we're at. You've got your Bible open in front of you. And I want you to follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read this song of ascents. Here's what it says. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the hilltops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reapers does not uh, fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now this psalm is the first that we've run into like this, and this is known as an imprecatory psalm. What that means, that, that it's an imprecatory psalm, is that it means to curse or to pray a curse on someone. You know, uh, sometimes we read through the Psalms and maybe we start thinking to ourselves, wow, I mean, should we really be praying this about somebody? I mean, should we really be cursing them like this and hoping for their harm? It's really the opposite of praying a blessing on someone. Instead, of, uh, instead you're praying that God would not bless them. It's not uh, one of those things of blessing, but it's one of those kinds of psalms that maybe makes you feel a little uncomfortable to read it at times. Sometimes I'm reading these things in the Bible and I think to myself, well, is it okay to even pray something like this? Is, should I be praying something like this? And I think that what we're going to find today is that, yes, this is a legitimate way to pray. There is a reason why the psalmist wrote this prayer. There's a reason why the psalmist calls God's people to join him in this prayer. But at the same time, I I wouldn't say that this is a really common way to pray in the Bible. that, That every time we pray, that we should be praying in some kind of an imprecatory prayer. We, we don't always pray in precatory prayers, but there are times when it is needed. Psalm 129 starts out with this call to reminisce. Just like when we were talking about this at the beginning, thinking back on the past experiences that you may have had going to camp. That this psalmist isn't talking about camp, though. He is calling people to think back on the past. And... He wants these worshipers to remember the common experience of the people of God. Verses 1 and 2, again we read this, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say. So he's calling the people to join with him, to remember along with him these things. And, and, then, he's, and then they respond and say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. You read this and you think, wow, I mean, that's kind of an interesting memory to bring up. I, I, I think one of the first things that we ought to ask ourselves, that we want to ask ourselves as it relates to this opening verse is, well, what is affliction? He's, he's talking about affliction, so what is affliction? Well, if you look it up there in the dictionary, you'll see a couple of definitions for affliction. And what we see there is, we're going to put this up on the screen, but the first definition for affliction is that it 
it is the cause of persistent pain and distress. The cause of persistent pain and distress. And then there's a second definition that's given for affliction. And that just has to do with great suffering. That when you are afflicted by someone or something, you're suffering greatly. Now, neither one of these, uh, these definitions sounds like a whole lot of fun. This is not something that we want. This is not something that we pray would happen to us. In fact, I think most of us would pray, please, Lord, no affliction. But just because we want that does not mean that we're never going to have to deal with that. Now, I think it's helpful for us here in 21st century North America uh, to, to, not, to know uh, not only the definition of uh, uh, what affliction is, but then also to know what, defini- what the definition of affliction is not, particularly as it relates to what the psalmist is talking about here. Because quite frankly, it, we are a little spoiled today, and so sometimes we think that we're experiencing affliction when we're really not. For instance, um, we're not experiencing affliction when we go out to the grocery store and we go looking for some Clorox wipes, and we can't find any. Now, I know that these Clorox wipes are like gold right now. I mean, you can't find them in any store that you go to, and if you do find them, they're in these little small containers, and they cost a whole lot more money than what they used to just a few months ago. I know that it's really, it really stinks to go out to the store and to not be able to buy Clorox wipes. We are used to being able to find the things that we're looking for. But as sad as this is, we are not experiencing affliction when that happens. You're not experiencing affliction when you're streaming your favorite song on Spotify and you lose your connection. That you're driving down the highway, you're just singing out at the top of your lungs your favorite song, and you go from 5G to no G in no time at all, and all of a sudden you, you have no songs at all. You're not experiencing affliction in that moment. Although, if you keep singing and there are other people in the car, they might think that they're experiencing affliction. Also, you're not experiencing affliction when you don't put in the time and you don't put in the effort on an assignment for school. You turn it in, you get a bad grade. No, the teacher is not afflicting you in that moment. That is just the consequence of you not putting in the effort. We have, we have to be realistic when it comes to this idea of affliction because there are times when we might think, you know, we're being persecuted when we're really not. There's a story that's told that dates back to the 1800s. It uh, involves this king known as Frederick the Great. Now, he was the king of a country called Prussia. Now, that's not Russia, but it's Prussia. And this is a territory in Europe. But he was having a, this discussion with his chaplain, his personal uh, pa- pastor, his uh, spiritual advisor. And he says, well, you know, um, how do you know that the Bible's true? The king was really skeptical and he said, you know, if the Bible is really true, then there ought to be some very brief explanation that would prove that it's true. Often when I ask someone to give me proof that the Bible is true, they offer some enormous book that I neither have the time nor the disposition to read. If the Bible is really from God, then we should be able to demonstrate that fact very simply. Forget your long arguments. Give me proof that the Bible's inspiration is true 
in, of the Bible's inspiration in just one word. And so that's what the king says to this uh, chaplain of his. The chaplain responds by saying, well, your majesty, it is possible for me to answer this request quite literally. I can give you proof that, of what you're asking for in a single word. The, the chaplain, uh, the king is kind of doesn't really believe this. He looks at this guy and he says, well, what magical word can you come up with that can give me the weight of proof here? The chaplain uh, pauses for a moment and then he says, Israel, the king is silent. You see, the chaplain's point is that Israel as a people have been so afflicted over the years that the only explanation that, that, that for their continued existence was God's commitment to keep his word, to keep his promises and sustain Israel as his people. Psalm 129 is describing for us this point, why this point is so valid. Because, uh, again, if you look at verses 1 and 2, the testimony, the memory of this psalmist and the people who are gathered together there is this, that greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet uh, let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. If you step back and you think about Israel's history, it's a history that is filled with persistent pain, with great suffering. And you don't have to even imagine that. You can read all about that throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, when Israel started out as a family, they go down to Egypt, and it's not long before they get enslaved there in Egypt. And they experience hundreds of years of great affliction. When God finally delivers them from Egypt, they get to the promised land and they start experiencing affliction from all the neighboring countries that are around them. The Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Edomites, the uh, Philistines, and the list could go on. And not only are they experiencing affliction from neighboring countries, but later on in their history, they experience affliction from distant countries as well. And then after that, there are these conquering empires and these occupying empires that come in and that afflict them and deport them. Places like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans. I mean, if you think about it, from generation to generation, affliction has been a common experience for the people of Israel down through their history. In fact, the uh, psalmist describes it like this in verse 3. He says, The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. That's the way that the psalmist describes the history of Israel. He says, that's what our experience has been like. If you think about it, it's quite a graphic picture here. The psalmist wants us to know just how intense their infliction has really been. And he pictures Israel as a person who is laying there on the ground while this team of oxen pull the blade of a plow over Israel's back. It is painful. It is a brutal image. Well, here in the Midwest, we have lots of farm, farms and farmers. Not so much here in Chicago, but you don't have to drive very far in order to see lots of farmland. We have a, a picture this morning of an oxen, a, a team of oxen pulling a plow. You know, when we think about farming, we usually think about big tractors in these huge fields. And the ancient world didn't have those things, though. 
They had these old plows that were somewhat sharp, and yet at the same time they were kind of dull. And they would go down deep into the ground and they would cut through the top layer of the dirt and they would turn over the dirt and tear it all up. Well, when, when you think about this, it's quite a vivid picture, but it helps us to understand what the Bible means when it talks about affliction, especially the affliction of God's people. And so when you think about affliction, don't think about going to the grocery store or some other store and them running out of some of your favorite supplies. No, think about this in terms of a team of oxen uh, taking a plow and running it over your back. That's how the the Bible describes affliction here. We're not talking about the inconvenience or going through a rough patch in life. This is talking about persecution that's been done intentionally by someone else. This is someone who sees you as the enemy, who wants to make sure your life is just miserable. They want to destroy you. Now, I think that if we're honest, as a church, collectively, we have rarely experienced this in North America. You know, the the church does experience this and has experienced this, but it hasn't necessarily been our experience here in America. In in other parts of the world, the church of Jesus Christ is greatly afflicted. There are tremendous amounts of Christians who are alive today and who are being persecuted for their faith, afflicted because they name the name of Jesus Christ. In certain parts of Asia and Africa, in the Middle East, there are believers who are experiencing this. While we may not experience this a whole lot in our country here in America today, persecution and affliction has been a common part of the Christian experience down through the ages. Throughout church history, there has been seasons of suffering and pain that have happened because people have been connected to Jesus Christ. And so this psalm is reminding us today that even though we might not be familiar with affliction like this ourselves so much, this has been a common experience for the people of God throughout history. And and it's something that other Christians around the world are currently experiencing, which might make you wonder, well, why is that? I mean, after all, God's on our side, and wouldn't he make life easy for us? Wouldn't he be there to protect us from affliction? Last week, we looked at Psalm 128, and it talked about what it means to be blessed by the Lord. I like that message. Uh, but this very next psalm is about affliction, and the question is, well, how do you keep the faith? How do you remain strong during painful and difficult times? Well, Our song leader offers two very important responses in the midst of affliction. The first response just has to do with perspective. Perspective. Look again at verse 4 where it says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Here are these people who are looking back on their affliction and they remember how bad and how painful it was and what it was like to have someone pull a plow right over their back. I mean, that's the image that comes to their mind. And yet the Lord intervenes in that moment. The psalmist and all the pilgrims who are singing along with him look could look back and they could say, well, whatever... 
terrible things we have experienced in the past, there are a few things that have always been true. First of all, God is and always has been righteous. That he's not the one who's been afflicting them. His character has never changed. And God is actually the one who delivered them. Now, maybe it, does, it didn't happen in the time that they wanted or in the way that they wanted, but God was always faithful to deliver. This phrase here where it says, he has cut the cords of the wicked, actually uh, takes us back to that team of oxen and that plow. And we're going to put that picture back up on the screen. But here are these oxen who are pulling this plow. And the picture is that they're cutting these deep, painful roads in the back of Israel. They're bringing this affliction upon the people of God. But then there is this reminder that it was God who brought deliverance, that he cut the cords of the wicked. In other words, the cords, the, the chains that tied the oxen to the plow were broken and the plow stopped. The plans that the wicked had against the, the people of God ultimately fell apart because God stepped in. God intervened. We can read about that throughout the Old Testament. We see this happening over and over and over again. You see, no matter what we experience, no matter how hard it is, no matter how painful it is, we cannot let go of the truth that God is righteous and just and holy. He is not turning a blind eye to injustice and unrighteousness. His timing might not necessarily be our timing, but he's not closing his eyes and just looking away. And because of that, we can trust that he will bring deliverance to his people in his way and in his timing. The reality is that when we do go through seasons of affliction, it won't be because of how strong and how wise and how great we are that we're able to survive those things. It will be because of the Lord. Eugene Peterson notes this, that it will be because of how strong God is for us. In fact, he writes this, he says, The central reality for Christians is the personal, unalterable, persevering commitment God makes to us. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. It is the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith. Not because of how great we are. Uh, no, uh, uh, we survive in the way of faith. Not because we have an extraordinary stamina. But because God is righteous. Because God sticks with us. Amen to that, right? And so our first response in the midst of affliction is to try to keep a proper perspective. That we remember who God is and what he ultimately does. But then secondly, we need to pray. We need to respond in prayer. Verse 5, the psalmist says this. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Here's the imprecatory prayer. They're not asking for a blessing. They're asking for God in his righteousness to intervene and to stop the wickedness. To stop the injustice that they're experiencing, that's going on around them. 
Notice that the psalmist doesn't get personal here. He doesn't call for a particular individual. He doesn't say, God, go find Joe, hunt him down, and kill him. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, Jesus taught us to deal with personal conflict graciously. And in Luke chapter 6 and verses 27 through 29, Jesus is speaking there and he gives his followers these instructions. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to, the one, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. In other words, if there are personal conflicts of injustice, our goal should be to deal with them graciously. This is a prayer of dealing with everyone who is, uh, has a, a particular mindset, anyone who supports and practices the persecution of God's people. This prayer is for all who hate Zion. And the request is that God would put them to shame, that God would cause their plans to fail. God, don't let this unrighteousness prevail. If they're planning evil, don't let them have any success at all. The first part of this prayer just has to do with God not allowing the mindset of evil to succeed. But then secondly, I want you to notice that these singers pray that the efforts of those who are afflicted would fail. Look again at verses 6 and 7 where it says this, let them be like the grass on the hilltops, on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Now, that sounds really strange to most of us because we don't really think too much about growing crops on the rooftop of our houses, but it was not an uncommon thing in the ancient world to have a layer of dirt on the top of your house. In fact, we have a picture of what some of these ancient houses looked like. And the rooftop that there is made out of clay or dirt. And sometimes there, there would be these seeds that would land on the tops of the roofs and they would start to grow. But they're, they're, they, they wouldn't stay, they wouldn't last very long because the scorching sun would be so hot it wouldn't allow anything to grow up there. And, and the dirt wasn't very deep and it wasn't deep enough to, to get any roots down in there. And so you would see this little piece of grass maybe springing up but then all of a sudden it would just wither away really quickly. And the psalmist is saying, well, God... That's what we pray would happen to the plans of the wicked. We pray that whatever they're attempting to do, it would just be like that. That it would have no success, it would just wither away, that it would fail miserably. This is an example in the scriptures that we're given of how to pray for those who practice unrighteousness, for those who are violently opposed to the people of God. So the psalmist prays that the mindset and the efforts of the wicked would be put to shame and would wither away to nothing. But then thirdly, he prays that God would bless those who, who would not bless those who practice affliction. In verse 8, we read this. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. You know, at harvest time, it was common for people to pass by workers who were out in the field. And as they passed by, they would uh, pass this blessing off onto them. 
Because a harvest that was blessed would be a blessing to the whole community. And so if you were walking in this field, you might shout out to some of the workers out in the field and you say, may the Lord bless you. May may the Lord bless the work of your hands. We actually see an example of this in the book of Ruth. But here, the psalmist is saying, in this situation, we want to pray just the opposite of that. Because if God blesses the work of the oppressors, then that means that there's going to be more suffering for the people of God. And so we pray that God doesn't bless the afflictors. We pray that God doesn't bless their work, that he doesn't bless their efforts. Lord, let them fail, embarrass them. Let their works be miserably unproductive. Whatever it takes, stop them. To pray this imprecatory prayer is to seek God's righteousness, to seek God's justice in the face of injustice. This is a holy way to pray. Now, as we close this morning, I just want to offer a word of encouragement here, especially to those of you who are worshiping today who might be experiencing affliction. You know, the church in America in general might not be experiencing persecution and affliction, but on a personal level, you might be experiencing those things. It might be that you have, have to deal with affliction from co-workers, because uh, of your, your faith in Jesus Christ. They, they know that you're a Christian. And so they go out of their way to make your life miserable. As miserable as possible. They're, they're intentionally trying to make your life difficult. It might be that your family members have sought to bring affliction upon you. And for some of you, you came to faith in Jesus Christ and it was like you were an outsider in your own family. You were born again and your family didn't want anything to do with that. Not only did they not invite you, but they actually pushed you out. They wanted to make life difficult on you, as difficult as they possibly could. For some of you students, you might run into this in school. And you have a teacher or a professor who is not uh, in favor of Christianity and And when they find out that you're a follower of Jesus, they go out of their way to embarrass you. Sometimes it can seem like God has forgotten you, that it doesn't make sense that he is allowing you to go through all of this. And when you're experiencing affliction, it can be really painful. Now, I don't necessarily have the answer for your specific situation, but I I do want you to remember two very important things here. Beyond what the psalmist has been telling us today... Two things that I think are very important for us to remember about God. First of all, God allows any suffering that you would go through today in order to produce a glorious reward for you in eternity. Now, I'm not making this up. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter's writing to believers who are living in a hostile world. They're facing affliction. He writes to them, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he talks about this faith, and he says, in this you rejoice, in this faith you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says that as Christians... Sometimes we go through affliction. Sometimes we go through great trials. And God uses those things in order to refine our faith. 
That, that as life heats up, God uses that heat, God uses that fire in order to burn off the ugliness and the sinfulness that's in our lives. The goal is that we might be able to reflect Him more clearly. And the result is this beautiful reward. So first, God uses the trials in our lives to make us into who he created us to be. But then secondly, we need to remember that God hasn't abandoned us. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 9, we're reminded that God is with his people. Isaiah says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. In other words, everything that Israel experienced, that, that they, they did not experience alone. That God was with them every step of the way. More than that, God, more than God being with us in our affliction, the gospel tells us that Jesus came and he was actually afflicted for us. Isaiah again, Isaiah 53, we read this about Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus was afflicted for us, even to the point of death, so that through his death and resurrection, he might be able to offer us eternal life. Friends, we have the victory because of Jesus. And so, when we go through affliction in life, and we should expect that we will go through affliction, we need to remember that God is using that affliction for our good, That God is with us in the midst of our affliction. And that Jesus was afflicted for us so so that he might lead us into victory. Let's pray.